Guidelines and Practice Medication Safety by Jennifer Speth. Abstract Medication errors are preventable events that healthcare professionals, consumers, and medication manufacturers report to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The agency receives more than 100,000 medication related reports each year, and some reports involve patient death. A variety of sources provide perioperative nurses with information on interventions and practices to prevent medication errors, including the U.S. Pharmacopeia, the Joint Commission, Medication Manufacturers' Instructions for Use, Safety Data Sheets, and the updated AORN, Guideline for Medication Safety. This article provides an overview of the guideline and discusses recommendations for organizational oversight, procurement and storage, retrieval and preparation, labeling, and hazardous medications. It also includes a scenario that illustrates perioperative nursing practices for administering an antineoplastic medication intraoperatively. Perioperative nurses should review the guideline in its entirety and implement recommendations in operative or procedural settings. Medication errors are preventable events that can result in serious patient harm, for example, disability, death, and occur during any phase of the medication use process. That is, from procuring the medication to monitoring the patient after administration. Healthcare professionals, consumers, and medication manufacturers submit more than 100,000 medication error reports to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, each year. The revised AORN, Guideline for Medication Safety, provides perioperative team members with recommendations to address the following. 1. Organizational oversight. 2. Medication reconciliation. 3. Procurement and storage. 4. Ordering and prescribing. 5. Team communication. 6. Retrieval and preparation. 7. Administration. 8. Transfer to the sterile field. 9. Labeling. 10. Irrigation solutions. 11. High alert medications. 12. Hazardous medications. 13. Patient monitoring. 14. Patient education. 15. Disposal. 16. Technology. 17. Documentation. 18. Personnel education. And 19. Quality and reporting. The AORN Guideline Development Team assessed the available evidence and included regulatory requirements when the governmental regulations supported the initiative and made recommendations when the benefits of the initiative clearly would exceed the harms. In general, high to moderate quality evidence supports recommendations. The AORN Guideline Development Team also made conditional recommendations when the benefits of the initiative likely would exceed the harms. Any level of evidence supports conditional recommendations under certain conditions. The evidence table for the Medication Safety Guideline can be found at https colon double slash www.aorn.org slash docs slash default hyphen source slash guidelines hyphen resources slash clinical hyphen research slash nursing hyphen research slash 
evidence-rating-and-table-slash-medication-safety-slash-medication-safety-evidence-table-0-6-0-6-2-3.pdf. This article provides an overview of the recommendations associated with organizational oversight, procurement and storage, retrieval and preparation, labeling, and hazardous medications. Table 1 identifies guideline recommendations for some questions that are not discussed in this article. Perioperative nurses should review the revised guideline in its entirety for additional information that may affect their practice. Organizational Oversight Organizational oversight of medication use processes can help facilitate standardization and may reduce the risk of medication errors. An interdisciplinary committee comprising representatives from the pharmacy, nursing, and risk and quality management departments and licensed practitioners, for example, surgeons, anesthesia professionals, should manage standard medication processes for the facility. The committee should include key stakeholders, for example, perioperative nurses, as necessary to identify medication error risk factors associated with their practice. Inclusiveness can promote teamwork and compliance and provide a platform for strengthening policies and procedures. When developing policies and procedures for medication management in perioperative areas, the interdisciplinary committee should address patient and personnel safety, responsibility, authority, and accountability for all medication use process phases. For example, procuring, prescribing, dispensing, administering. Although the phases are consistent in all healthcare settings, there are attributes and situations that are unique to the perioperative setting, including 1. A lack of computerized physician order entry with associated decision support. 2. A lack of medication order verification in a pharmacy. 3. Multiple licensed practitioners submitting medication orders. 4. Multiple clinicians administering medications. 5. A lack of standard labeling. 6. Numerous patient care transitions. And 7. Sensory distractions inherent to the environment. From a regulatory perspective, policies and procedures for medication preparation and administration must adhere to all federal, state, and local requirements and align with the nationally recognized guidelines and recommendations. Therefore, the policies and procedures must specify the 1. Categories of licensed clinicians who can administer medications. 2. Types of medications that clinicians in different roles can administer. 3. Required education topics to address before clinicians administer medications. 4. Location of current and acceptable information on medications. 5. Method for assessing expertise when pharmacists are not available. 6. Processes for identification of controlled substance loss or diversion. And 7. Methods for conducting research involving investigational medications. Because no current evidence supports the timing of IV fluid administration, for example, before 60 minutes have elapsed after puncture, AORN recommends the policies and procedures specify the length of time that should elapse between puncture of an IV solution container 
and beginning administration. Researchers obtained samples from 80 IV bags containing lactated ringer solution at different time intervals after puncture. That is, immediately, one hour later, two, three, four, and eight hours later. To determine the amount of bacterial growth at each time point, they found no growth. As a condition of participation, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, requires hospitals to have antimicrobial stewardship programs for optimizing antibiotic use according to available evidence. Members of a hospital committee involved with antimicrobial stewardship should regularly review perioperative antibiotic administration practices. For example, preoperative antibiotic prophylaxis, redosing of prophylactic antibiotics, antibiotics used in or on wounds, and provide perioperative leaders with feedback. The committee also may be involved with therapeutic antibiotic dosing for suspected infection, which likely has different requirements than antibiotic prophylaxis. Procurement and Storage To help perioperative nurses avoid medication errors, facility personnel should obtain medication in single-dose units, pre-filled syringes, and limited concentrations whenever possible. If single doses and pre-filled syringes are not available, personnel should procure the medication in a size similar to the requested dose. When possible, facility personnel also should obtain compounded medications, that is, a combination of at least two medications, directly from the manufacturer or from an FDA-registered outsourcing facility. However, preparing a medication, for example, mixing, reconstituting, according to the manufacturer's instructions for use, IFU, is not compounding. Compounded medications are not FDA-approved. The FDA, therefore, quote, does not verify their safety, effectiveness, or quality before they are marketed, end quote. In addition, use of compounded medications can lead to serious adverse patient events. For example, severe injury, death. Because they may be contaminated or lack the originally intended strength, quality, and purity. Outsourcing facilities that are registered with the FDA are likely to adhere to regulatory requirements and good manufacturing practices. When compounded medications cannot be obtained from the manufacturer or an outsourcing facility, personnel should use a pharmacy that meets the standards of the U.S. Pharmacopeia, USP. Because CMS regulations state that, quote, all drugs and biologicals must be kept in a secure area and locked when appropriate, end quote. Perioperative nurses must store medications securely and limit access to them regardless of the storage location, for example, refrigerator, anesthesia, or emergency cart. A staffed OR is considered secure. However, an unoccupied OR that is not located in a locked unit is considered unsecure. Personnel should store medications, including those in emergency and specialty carts, in a standard manner as follows. 1. Organize individual medications according to the generic name and packaging and avoid storing alphabetically. 2. Isolate high-alert medications and those that sound or look the same as another medication. 3. 
use individual bins or dividers to separate medications. 4. Use tall man lettering on labels to draw attention to name differences. And 5. Verify medication labels are visible. Perioperative nurses should store multi-dose vials outside the immediate patient treatment area, that is, operating or procedure room, unless the vial will be used for only one patient. Retrieval and Preparation As a condition of participation, CMS requires personnel to adhere to federal and state regulations as well as to the licensed practitioner's orders and accepted practice standards when preparing medication. To prevent medication errors, personnel should avoid 1. Distracting or interrupting personnel who are retrieving and preparing medications. 2. Lengthy time gaps between the procedure and medication retrieval. And 3. Obtaining medications for multiple patients at the same time. When retrieving medications, personnel should verify that the beyond use and expiration dates have not passed and avoid bringing expired medications into the operating or procedure room. The beyond use date relates to the compounding process and indicates, quote, the date and time after which the medication must not be used, stored, or transported, end quote, regardless of the expiration date of the ingredients in the compounded medication. After initial cap removal, but before withdrawing medication from the vial, perioperative nurses should use alcohol to disinfect the stopper and allow it to dry. Researchers studied microbial contamination of medication vial diaphragms after one of the following. Routine handling, that is, removal of the dust cover with clean hands before sampling. Exposure of the vial with dust cover in place to an Escherichia coli contaminated aerosol or submersion of the vial with dust cover in place into an E. coli-contaminated liquid. 2. 17%. Of 12 access diaphragms, tested positive for contaminants after routine handling and removal of caps. There was no bacterial growth for any vial diaphragms after exposure to aerosolized E. coli for 30 minutes and 24 hours. 1. 20%. Of 5 diaphragms, showed bacterial growth 30 minutes after submersion in the liquid contaminant, and all five diaphragms showed bacterial growth at 24 hours after submersion. The researchers recommended disinfecting medication vial stoppers before accessing the contents. Each time clinicians withdraw medications from vials, they should use a new sterile access device. For example, needleless device, blunt needle. Limiting the use of sharps can reduce the risk of injury and exposure among healthcare personnel. AORN conditionally recommends using a needle and syringe if a needleless method is not available or feasible. For example, to reduce the risk of transferring glass particles to the patient, a blunt filter needle may be used to withdraw medication from a glass ampule. As a regulatory requirement, Personnel must adhere to federal, state, and local regulations and accepted standards when compounding medications. AORN conditionally recommends compounding medications in the OR for immediate use when no other option, for example, obtaining the compounded medication from an FDA-registered outsourcing facility, exists. 
personnel should adhere to the USP requirements when hospital-based compounding is necessary. Personnel who compound sterile preparations should 1. Participate in appropriate education and competency verification activities. 2. Mix no more than three commercially prepared packages of non-hazardous products. 3. Access a bag or vial of sterile solution or an administration container no more than twice. 4. Perform proper hand hygiene before and during the compounding process. 5. Disinfect the compounding surface before beginning the process. 6. Use aseptic technique. 7. Use dispensing equipment or a sterile syringe. 8. Verify medication amount, concentration, and beyond use and expiration dates. And 9. Visually inspect the compounded medication to determine if particulate matter is present. In the OR, personnel should label compounded medication that will not be administered immediately or completely. Such labels should include patient identification information, ingredient names and amounts, identification, for example, name initials, of the individual who compounded the medication, the current date, and the beyond-use date and time. Compounded medications are intended for immediate use, and the OR environment does not meet the air quality requirements of the pharmacy environment for compounding. Labeling After transferring medications, including solutions and compounds, from the original container, personnel should immediately apply a label that includes the full name of the medication, concentration, and dilution and dilutant, if applicable, with approved abbreviations and dose expressions. See Figure 1. If there is concern that the medication will expire during the procedure, personnel also should include the beyond-use date and time or expiration date and time on the label. Because unlabeled medications are unidentifiable, serious adverse events can occur when unlabeled medications are administered during procedures. Labeling medications immediately after transfer from the original container is a risk reduction activity. When medications and solutions are dispensed onto a sterile field, the scrub person should place a pre-printed sterile label on the sterile medication container and verify it with the RN circulator. Pre-printed labels can help reduce errors associated with illegible handwriting and standardize the labeling process. Personnel should discard any unlabeled medication immediately. Hazardous Medications When preparing, administering, and disposing of hazardous medications, personnel can be exposed to dangerous levels of chemicals in these products and may experience serious side effects, such as cancer, infertility, and genetic damage. As a regulatory requirement, healthcare organization leaders must create a hazard communication program that addresses hazardous medications to mitigate risks and provide handling instructions. A hazardous medication safety plan should include 1. A list of all hazardous medications used in the facility. 2. Safe handling methods for hazardous medications. 3. Education and competency requirements according to role. 4. Specific types of personal protective equipment, PPE, to be worn 
and the roles and tasks that require it. 5. Waste handling and disposal processes. 6. Procedures for testing environmental surfaces. 7. Procedures for deactivating, decontaminating, and cleaning. And 8. Procedures for emergencies and medical surveillance. Organization leaders should designate an individual who possesses the appropriate knowledge and understanding of hazardous medications to develop and implement appropriate procedures associated with their preparation, administration, and disposal. This individual's responsibilities also should include ensuring clinician competency, monitoring compliance with applicable standards, laws, and regulations, and maintaining appropriate testing records and following up when needed. Perioperative leaders should assign personnel who have self-identified as breastfeeding, actively pregnant, or attempting to conceive to a working role that does not require possible contact with hazardous medications. Results of a retrospective study on the relationship between occupational exposures and pregnancy outcomes showed that participants who were exposed to antineoplastic medications had a higher risk of spontaneous abortion. Odds ratio equals 2.13, 95% confidence interval equals 1.39 to 3.27. Then participants with other occupational exposures, for example, anesthetic gases, sterilizing agents. AORN recommends that personnel handle hazardous medications according to applicable regulations, manufacturers IFU, including the package inserts, safety data sheets, SDSs, and national guidelines. To protect personnel from exposure to hazardous medications, employers must provide appropriate PPE and information on the possible hazards that require PPE. To better understand the potential mechanisms of healthcare workers' exposure to antineoplastic medications, researchers in Canada sent eligible participants a questionnaire regarding their exposures. For example, mode of contact, duration, frequency. 18, 15%, of the 120 study participants indicated that they had been exposed to antineoplastic medications when working. Participants described the contributing causes associated with the exposures and inadequate controls. For example, lack of PPE was a common theme. The researchers believed that the occupational exposures were preventable. Personal Protective Equipment The USP and Oncology Nursing Society recommend use of at least an N95 respirator because of the risk of exposure to aerosolized hazardous medications during handling. However, a study on procedures involving hyperthermic intrathoracic chemotherapy, HITOC, and pressurized intraperitoneal aerosol chemotherapy, PIPAC, techniques, found that the risk of air contamination during these procedures was low. When selecting masks or respiratory protection, for example, surgical N95, perioperative nurses should consider the facility's hazardous medication safety plan, procedure being performed, method of medication administration, and perceived exposure risk. They should wear a powered air purifying respirator or a chemical cartridge-type respirator that covers the entire face for known or suspected airborne exposure to gases and vapors 
from the hazardous medications. For example, cleaning a large spill that cannot be contained with a spill kit. As a regulatory requirement, personnel must wear eye and face protection when there is a known risk for spray, splatter, or splash of hazardous medications, rather than either eye protection or a face shield alone. The combination of a face shield and goggles is important because neither device alone provides adequate protection of both the face and the eyes. When in contact with contaminated items, that is, hazardous medications, is expected, personnel should wear a disposable gown that provides the most effective liquid barrier protection. These gowns should be sterile for scrubbed team members. Level 4 gowns provide the most protection and can resist liquid and viral penetration. However, no testing has been done to determine their permeability to chemotherapeutic agents. Personnel should change gowns that may be contaminated with hazardous medications according to the manufacturer's IFU. If the manufacturer does not provide recommendations, personnel should change gowns after each use, immediately after contact with the medication, for example, splash, before leaving the area where potential contamination occurred, and every two to three hours. When performing tasks that may result in contamination with hazardous medication, personnel should wear two pairs of powder-free chemotherapy gloves that meet the applicable standards for that medication. Personnel should check the gloves for defects before use. They also should change them every 30 minutes, or as indicated in the manufacturer's IFU, and whenever they become damaged or contaminated. When handling sterile items, gloves should be sterile. Personnel should remove PPE used during the handling of or potential contact with hazardous medications before performing any other task. For example, documentation, handling non-hazardous items. After removal, they should dispose of used PPE according to the facility's policies and applicable federal, state, and local regulations. Personal protective equipment is considered contaminated after handling or potentially contacting hazardous medication and, quote, should be disposed of in the proper waste container, end quote, such as a yellow trace chemotherapy waste container. See figure 2. Personnel should then wash their hands with soap and water before resuming activities that do not involve hazardous medications. Wearing potentially contaminated PPE when touching or handling work surfaces or patient care items may cause unintentional exposure to the hazardous medication. Considerations for Instruments and the Environment When a patient requires a hazardous medication during a procedure and there is a possibility of a medication leak or spill or excretion, personnel should protect the bed and bed linens with a disposable linen and impervious absorbent pads. Disposable linen and absorbent pads protect the bed and avoid the need to decontaminate and clean contaminated items that may expose personnel to hazardous medications. Personnel should consider reusable linens and the environments they touch to be contaminated. Researchers in Canada examined pharmacies and patient care areas in 25 hospitals for environmental contamination from hazardous medications. Of the six environmental sampling sites in patient care areas, 
the three sites with the highest number of samples contaminated with cyclophosphamide were the exterior surface of a hazardous medication container, 15 positive samples, an armrest, 12 positive samples, and a counter used for priming and validation, 12 positive samples. The median concentration of cyclophosphamide in these three areas exceeded the limit of detection. The researchers concluded that using PPE, monitoring the environment of care, and adhering to relevant policies, were required to reduce contamination. When administering hazardous medications intraoperatively, perioperative personnel should use single-use instruments to help prevent unnecessary exposure among personnel and eliminate the need to implement special deactivation and decontamination protocols that may harm the instrument. An interdisciplinary team comprising the Hazardous Medication Safety Plan leader and representatives from the pharmacy, nursing, occupational health, quality and risk management, environmental services, and sterile processing departments should collaborate with perioperative personnel to determine the methods for deactivating, cleaning, and decontaminating reusable instruments, devices, and environmental services that may become contaminated with hazardous medications. When determining the appropriate processes for deactivating, cleaning, and decontaminating contaminated items, the team should consider the medication and chemical manufacturer's IFU as well as the instrument, device, or surface manufacturer's IFU, along with applicable SDSs and the facility's policy and procedure. Perioperative personnel should avoid using an aerosolized point-of-use pretreatment solution on instruments potentially contaminated with a hazardous medication because the solution may cause medication residue to aerosolize. Perioperative personnel also should collaborate with an interdisciplinary team comprising nurses, surgical technologists, and sterile processing personnel to determine safe methods for labeling, transporting, and communicating information about instruments that may be contaminated with hazardous medications. Administration of Hyperthermic Intraperitoneal Chemotherapy, HIPEC, HITOC, and PIPAC may require additional safety precautions during and after the procedures. These are detailed in the Medication Safety Guideline. Aerosolization precautions are not needed for HIPEC and HITOC procedures because the medication administration does not involve aerosolization. Conversely, splashing is not a concern during PIPAC procedures because the medication is administered via syringe rather than solution bag. AORN provides a conditional recommendation for additional precautions for handling and administering hazardous medications during and after HIPEC or HITOC procedures, including 1. Designating a specific OR for these procedures. 2. Using a smoke evacuator to capture medication vapor. And 3. Allowing for increased OR cleaning time after these procedures. In addition, scrubbed personnel may wear a non-sterile disposable fluid-resistant hood during these procedures. To prevent cross-contamination, cleaning personnel may change their outer gloves and cleaning supplies when they move from one area of the OR to another. Scenario Stephanie has been an RN circulator 
and a large metropolitan academic medical center for two years. One morning, when she arrives at the hospital and checks her assignment, she sees that she is assigned to work with Dr. B, a urologist, who will perform a transurethral resection of a bladder tumor with intravesical therapy. That is, installation of an antineoplastic medication into the bladder during the first procedure of the day. Stephanie's primary team is plastics, but she worked as the RN circulator for this type of procedure approximately six weeks ago. Although she is still unfamiliar with the required steps for administering the medication, she knows that there will be an order for it and that it will require special handling. Stephanie finds Camilla, the urology team leader, to discuss her concerns and request support for the procedure. After listening to Stephanie's concerns, Camilla decides to assist her with the RN circulator responsibilities. She tells Stephanie that the surgeon usually orders the required medication from the pharmacy a few days before the procedure to ensure its availability. Stephanie accesses the patient's electronic health record to find the specific antineoplastic medication ordered. She then calls the pharmacy and confirms that the medication has been prepared. She is told that a pharmacist will bring it to the OR before the procedure begins. After relaying the status of the medication ordered to Camilla, Stephanie asks about required PPE and methods to manage any potentially hazardous waste in the OR. Camilla suggests that Stephanie review the Hazardous Medication Safety Plan and the SDS for this medication for specific instructions. While reading, Stephanie learns that all personnel who handle the antineoplastic medication require double chemotherapy-specific gloves, goggles, a face shield, a surgical mask, and a level 4 gown specific to the individual's role. That is, sterile gown for the scrubbed team members. She also notes that the contaminated hazardous waste should be placed in a yellow trace chemotherapy waste container for disposal. As she is reviewing the facility's hazardous medication safety plan, Stephanie learns that one of the potential hazards of handling this medication is chromosomal damage and birth defects. Pregnant personnel should not be exposed to this medication. Immediately, Stephanie mentions to Camilla that she believes she heard Amy, the surgical technologist who was assigned to the procedure, openly discussing that she is pregnant. Camilla thanks Stephanie for the information, privately meets with Amy, and then collaborates with the charge nurse to change Amy's assignment. As Stephanie prepares the OR, Camilla reminds her to place disposable linen and absorbent pads on the OR bed because of the risk for spillage and excretion. Stephanie also confirms that all required PPE is readily available and at least one yellow trace chemotherapy waste container is in the OR. They finish the OR preparations and confirm that the surgical technologist is wearing appropriate PPE and has no needs. Stephanie and Camilla leave the OR for the charge nurse's desk and meet the pharmacist, who has the antineoplastic medication in a sealed, clearly marked container affixed with a yellow label and the biohazard symbol. The pharmacist provides a handover report. For example, patient identification, medication information, PPE requirements. For the antineoplastic medication, before passing the sealed container to Camilla. Camilla returns to the OR with the medication, 
while Stephanie goes to the preoperative area to interview the patient, Mix L. Stephanie confirms that all items on the preoperative checklist are complete before transporting Mix L to the OR and assisting them onto the bed. The anesthesia professional places the required monitors and induces general anesthesia. Camilla, Stephanie, and Dr. B then place Mix L in the lithotomy position. Stephanie performs patient skin antisepsis, Dr. B drapes, and the team performs the timeout before incision. There are no unplanned events during the procedure, and near the end, Dr. B requests the anti-neoplastic medication. Stephanie dons appropriate PPE, and Dr. B, who is already wearing a level 4 gown, goggles, and face shield, dons two pairs of chemotherapy gloves. Stephanie double-checks the medication with Dr. B, and then he inserts a two-way catheter, instills the antineoplastic medication, and clamps the catheter. The surgical team completes all end-of-procedure activities, for example, counting, securing the catheter, and then moves Mix L from the OR bed to a hospital bed that is covered with a disposable absorbent pad before removing their PPE. After reversal of general anesthesia, Stephanie and the anesthesia professional transport Mix L to the post-anesthesia care unit. Stephanie provides a handover report to the post-anesthesia care unit nurse. She includes information on the anti-neoplastic medication and reminders from the hazardous medication policy. For example, PPE, how to manage excreta. Stephanie then returns to the OR to assist with the room turnover. She immediately discovers that the used surgical gowns and gloves were discarded into the regular waste container rather than the yellow container for trace chemotherapy waste. Stephanie dons appropriate PPE to transfer the inappropriately placed waste to the yellow waste container. She helps finish the room turnover before preparing for the next procedure. Conclusion Perioperative medication management is complex and errors can occur at any stage. An interdisciplinary team should provide oversight and standardization of medication practices in healthcare organizations. Compounded medication should be obtained from either the manufacturer or an FDA-registered outsourcing facility, and compounding in the OR should only occur when there are no other alternatives available. When transferring medications from the original container and not administering them immediately, personnel should properly label the container. To prevent incidental exposure to hazardous medications, such as those used to treat cancer, personnel should handle, administer, and dispose of the medication according to the manufacturer's IFU. This may involve wearing additional types of PPE, for example, face shield and goggles, two pairs of chemotherapy gloves.